Uh, we've started a series here this, starting last week, we uh, started a series on family matters, and that's why you see this family up there swinging their children, and if you, hopefully it's not swinging them over a cliff. Well, God, please help them. Let's just have them have some fun with that, right? They're swinging them, all right? But anyway, we, uh, we're, we're, there's an attack on the families. There's an attack on everything that God has established to be uh, good and right and wholesome and, 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 and effective and, and blessed in our world. Um, and, and the enemy has just taken that and just turning it on its head. And we last week started with a series, in this series, with a message entitled, What is a Woman? And uh, I hope you'll listen to that. You can listen to it on our website. Uh, you can listen to it also. Um, we have an app. If you want to look up uh, our app on, on the, in the app store, you can, you know, do all kinds of stuff with our app. So look for that. But while you're, while you're taking your Bibles and looking in Matthew I want to talk to you about, today we're going to talk about um, seven ways to cultivate a godly marriage. Now, I'm not speaking from, I'm only speaking from 35 years of experience, and, and I feel like the longer I'm married, the, the less I know, you know, the, like the older I get, the less I know, and the, all of that sort of thing, but I think there's some things that, that hopefully that I can apply, and uh, that we can all apply to our lives and in, uh, in our marriages, but I want to start off by something fun, okay, so hopefully this will be funny. Uh, Ladies, don't take offense, but the rules according to women, okay? The rules according to women. Are you ready? All right, guys, see if you can relate to this. Number one, the females always make the rules, okay? <clears throat> and you guys are amening at your own risk here, okay? <laughs> I have total disclaimer. I'm not responsible for what happens on the way home today, okay? Number two, the rules are subject to change at any time without prior notification, Three, no male can possibly know all the rules. Four, if the female suspects the male knows all the rules, she must immediately change some or all of the rules. Five, the female is never wrong. Ladies, be careful. Six, the fem if the female is wrong, it's because of a flagrant misunderstanding, which was a direct result of something the male did or said something wrong. It wasn't the lady's fault. Careful, ladies. Number seven. <laughs> if rule number six applies, what I just said, the male must apologize immediately for causing the misunderstanding. Golly, <laughs> I need to stop right now. Eight, the female can change her mind at any given point in time. Nine, the male must never change his mind without express written consent from the female. Ten, the female has every right to be angry or upset at any time. Eleven, the male must remain calm at all times. <clears throat> Unless the female, of course, wants him to be angry or upset. Twelve, the female must, under no circumstances, let the male know whether or not she wants him to be angry or upset. Thirteen, any attempt to document the rules could result in bodily harm. And finally, fourteen. <laughs> and finally, fourteen, if the female has PMS, all the rules are null and void. Okay. Lord, just bless as we leave this place today, right now. We're dismissing now. No, I'm kidding. <clears throat> so, as we said last week, <laughs> sorry guys, all right, and sorry ladies, that was kind of fun though. But as we, as we started last week, I want to remind you, and I feel like the, the overarching theme of what we're doing here in the next several weeks, because 
We talked about what is a woman last Sunday. We're going to actually finish it off on Father's Day by ask, answering what is a man. I mean, it seems like common sense stuff, but in this world that everything's turned upside down, we have to kind of just get back to the original, right? And what does God's Word say about this? So I want to remind you today that what we talked about last week is that we're living in an age of great deception. Uh, the spirit of Antichrist, we have to understand what's going on here. It's the spirit of Antichrist that is strongly pushing against the, the, the social norms and the biblical standards of things in our world, whether it be, you name it, but we're looking at relationships, marriage, and really gender and all of that for the next several weeks. And you have to understand what the spirit of Antichrist is, and it's these three things, and it's in this order. The spirit of Antichrist is a spirit of deception. If you're taking notes, this would be important for you to write down because this is what we're going to be talking about really over the next several weeks and how we see him working in all these different areas. The spirit of deception is the spirit of Antichrist. Great deception. It's a great deception. It's not, it's not, it's not a little bit. It's a lot. It's subtle, but it's profound, okay? Deception. Now, that deception, if it works, leads to confusion, and then once we're in that place of confusion, then he creates division. So think about it. There's a deception. It moves to confusion, which leads to division. It's going to happen in the, um, in the tribulation very profoundly. That's what, in fact, the first, the, first, uh, the first thing that's going to happen in the book of Revelation, the first, uh, the first sort of really punishment or wrath that God pours out is the spirit of Antichrist. It's the first horse of the apocalypse is, the, is, that, is this Antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist. We see it happening now before the return of Christ, before the rapture, but it's almost like it's kind of uh, coming attractions sort of thing that's going on, okay? So that's where we are with it right now. And we see this happening in seemingly this deception, confusion, and division. We see it happening in seemingly every area of our culture these days. I mean, just look around. You think, what's going on here? What's going on here? I'll tell you, it's the spirit of Antichrist that's going from, it's going from uh, deception to, uh, to confusion to division. And so as we begin this Family Matters, we see how Satan is trying to uh, throw all sorts of stuff at what God's created, this confusion that Satan is trying to throw at us. And as, as we looked at last week, what is a woman? We're going to go in order now today, and let's move into a place of what, what marriage is. What is marriage? The biblical standard for marriage, not what the world says. God created and established the institution of marriage from the very beginning. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you're going to see this. Of the three institutions that God's established, marriage, government, and the church, God established marriage first as the foundational institution and bedrock of any solid and thriving culture and society. As we've heard before, as a family goes, so goes a society. And anything that God has created, Satan desires to destroy. So he deceives, he confuses, and then he divides. And there's a ton of voices out there trying to define and redefine what marriage is. But I'm here to point us back to what God's Word says. I'm always going to do that. This is not my opinion. This is what God's Word says. As last week, let's start with the original product that was created by God before sin entered into the equation. And then we're going to move out from there into some helpful and hopefully practical tools that Jesus gave us, including uh, his Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. There's some 
Very important things that we can learn from actually from the Sermon on the Mount as far as marriage is concerned. Genesis one twenty seven is the original creation. He said this, it says this, that what God did is he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Male and female. Not male and female and other sorts of identities. He created male and female. Now, that's not me saying that. That's what God's Word says. So what we understand here is that God didn't create Adam and Steve. He created Adam and Eve, okay? And He didn't create Adam and a tree. He didn't create Adam and anything else. He created Adam and Eve, a, a man and a, and a woman. And that, that, that's undebatable as far as what God's Word says and as far as just the normal biological aspect of what we see all around us. For thousands of years, it's been a man and a woman, a male and a female. It's only been in the last several years that that gender confusion is happening. And we think, what's going on? Are we becoming more enlightened? No, we're becoming deceived. It's the spirit of Antichrist that's causing this to happen. Understand what's going on, and it'll help clarify so many other things. Regardless of what current law allows in our culture or any other culture, regardless of what's paraded pridefully, regardless of the angry mobs or the perverted legislatures, regardless of the loose lifestyles and the immoral choices of those around us, hear me today. Marriage began will always be in God's perfect original design is between one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship until death do them part. It's just that way. Genesis 2.24 says, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. In God's perfect original design, there was no shame. There was no struggle. There was no friction. It's just wonderful unity. Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. But then centered into mankind and because of that disobedience to God, sin created this division. Satan deceived Adam and Eve, which created that confusion that ultimately led to division. And after the disobedience, God showed up and he looked for Adam and Eve. After calling out for Adam, he responded in Genesis chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this you've done? And the woman says, well, the serpent deceived me, and then I ate it. It's just a lot of pointing fingers going on there. But what we really see on this is that sin not only entered into mankind, but into every aspect of life, including marriage. Understanding this as we live out our days with our mate will help us greatly as we face the inevitable conflicts and opportunities for serving and for loving and for living out these things with our spouse. How many ever heard of the seven-year itch? <clears throat> the seven-year itch. It's not some awful poison oak that you have for seven years. It it's actually refers to a time when one or both spouses grows tired of their marriage and they begin to long for something new. While studies have never proven seven as the precise number, there's, gonna, there's really many studies that have shown that divorce statistics do rise and peak somewhere between that five and ten-year model. 
I'm not sure, however, that we really need a bunch of studies to tell us what most of us who are married know by experience, that marriage is harder than we expected. And if we're looking for reasons to leave our marriage, we'll have plenty to choose from. Why else do you think that we include vows in our wedding ceremonies when we're looking at each other with love in our eyes and the romance is in the air and the dreams that are there of wonderful things that are going to happen? We include these vows that many times I don't think we really remember too much about. We don't really think of what we're saying. Wedding vows are not a declaration of the present love. Wedding vows are instead a mutually binding promise of future love. Think about it. Sure, you love each other on your wedding day, but what about the next week, the next month, the next year? I vow what we say is later on, I'm going to do these things for better or worse, richer for poor, in sickness and in health. We do these things when the fairy tale fades and the realities of marriage kick in. We say, in essence, I take you from this day forward for better, for worse, richer, for poor, sickness and health, to love and cherish, till death do us part. What we're really saying is, being yours might cost me more than I ever thought I could give and more than I can now imagine at this time as I'm exchanging these vows. But I do promise to never leave you. Vows tie inseparably the future ups and downs and joys and difficulties of marriage into the very beautiful part of the ceremony itself. You know, we all live in a fallen world and our marriages are impacted by this fall. I can say for Kelly and I, we've been married, it'll be coming up 35 years this August and our marriage has been challenging in some ways more than either of us expected but it's also been far sweeter than both of us ever imagined. We've certainly had our ups and downs over the years but countless times we've learned to rely on the wisdom and the strength of Jesus to get us through and to grow us together. There have been many rough edges smoothed out over the years. And there's still some rough edges, <clears throat> I'm sure, to be smoothed out over the years to come. And just as the people climbed up on the hill to listen to Jesus teach his Sermon on the Mount, we would all do well to stop and sit for a while this morning, as you're doing, and hear the words that Jesus has to say to us about marriage. If you will, I'd like for you to take some notes here, and this is the beginning of, uh, of, the, of the seven things. There's seven ways... <clears throat> that the Lord has given us, <clears throat> that he's given us so that we can take care of our marriage. Now, marriage, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's not the primary focus of what we know in those chapters is the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard the Sermon on the Mount, that phrasing before us where the Beatitudes are and different sort of things. I mean, he just really covered a lot of ground in those three chapters. In fact, marriage is only explicitly expressed in two of the 107 verses that are in those three chapters. But those three chapters do provide for us some profound counsel for marriages, young and old. And if you're not married here today, then if you one day will be, this might be something good for you to consider and take some notes so that you can apply them. If you're, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, there's still some things that you can apply here today uh, as, as we go through this. So please just let the Holy Spirit speak to you, amen? I want us to see what the Holy Spirit want to have, wants to teach us today as we confront, identify and confront the spirit of deception and confusion and division that's really trying to work in our families uh, over time today. Here's the first one. <clears throat> Take care where you build your house. Take care where you build your house. Now, 
Matthew 7, 24 says it this way. This is Jesus' words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We know this when the wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. What you know in this verse, though, is that this is the last part of what he was saying for two chapters before of a lot of great stuff that he was saying. So he's kind of pointing back to, if you hear these words that I just shared, these last 107 verses in this Sermon on the Mount that I've been sharing here today, if you do them, you're going to be like a wise man that's building your house on a rock. He taught on anger. He taught on lust. He taught on anxiety and integrity and vengeance and forgiveness and giving and fasting and praying and more. And then he closes with this really vivid picture of these two different kinds of homes, one that's built upon the rock and one that's built on sand. Now, the world gives us one way to build. The world says to build on sand. What is that? It's uncertainty. It's, un- it's, uh, it's unpredictability. It's, it's ever-changing. The nature of sand, it's shifting. It's undependable. I mean, you wouldn't build your house on the sand I would hope to live in, but too often we build our marriages and relationships on that same sort of unstable foundation. Now, God's word, on the other hand, gives us another way to build. It's built on a solid rock of Jesus. And Jesus is certain. He's predictable. He's never changing. He's sure. He's dependable. If you ever gone to the ocean where someone has built a sandcastle, you see, what a pretty sandcastle. You see it one day, you go back to that same spot the next day, and where is it? It's gone. The, the storms of life have washed it away. But several years ago, I went up to uh, Plymouth Rock up in, I think it's Connecticut or Massachusetts, somewhere up there in the Northeast. Help me out. Which state is it in? <laughs> Massachusetts. Lord, forgive me. Boy, that's a pretty strong sort of area right there. Massachusetts, Plymouth Rock. How many ever seen Plymouth Rock? I bet you if you go back, it's still going to be there, right? Why? Because it's solid. It's a rock. It's there. It's not going anywhere. It's been there for hundreds, thousands of years. That rock stays right there where you saw it the last time you saw it. Lives and marriages built on sand will fall. Lives and marriages built on rock will stand for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, in other words, whatever may come. Matthew 7, 25, he continues, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat the house down, but it didn't fall because it had been built on the rock. So what does that mean to build a marriage on the rock? Simple. It means to build our marriages on obedience to and faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. It means actively putting these words of Christ into action. It's putting them at the center of our daily rhythms. The world will tell you one way, but God's word tells you another. It doesn't mean the storms won't come. They will. But when you do, you're holding firm. You're holding true. You're holding fast on the foundation of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of creative ways that we can have more, invite him in in more meaningful ways in our marriage. I don't know, some of you, I know you read together. Some of you, people like to read and you you certainly can pray together. You can sing together if you're musically inclined. You can enjoy time together. Absolutely, every couple is different in their expressions and activities of honoring and including Jesus in their marriages. 
I'm so thankful for the blessing it is to be able to pray with Kelly. I'm so thankful for the blessing it is that I could talk with Kelly about Jesus and that we could just share our hearts with one another in that way. I'm so thankful that we have a common faith in Christ where we can encourage one another in our faith. Jesus has been the foundation of our marriage from day one. And he has blessed us and he has sustained us through every joy and through every storm. And I thank God for that. The shifting sands of deception and confusion and division will shatter any relationship as it would shatter any house built on sand. Every marriage learns quickly that it takes special spirit-filled intentionality to keep from drifting on the sand and staying firmly planted on the rock of Jesus. You can start with it being on the foundation and you can drift off if you're not careful. So you have to be intentional to keep it solid because you know conflict in marriage is inevitable. But what if in those conflicts when they arise we're more intentional to seek what Jesus wants most instead of what we want most? We may not always know exactly what Jesus wants, especially in the heat of the moment when, when, when things are going on, but, but a commitment to trust and obey him above all else in every situation would help resolve many tensions in marriages. You know, I, I have to think about what Jesus said when he was in the Garden of Eden, or rather in the Garden of Gethsemane before he, uh, right before he was crucified. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was struggling with that decision. Really, his flesh was battling against what he knew was right, but he yielded, didn't he? And thank God that he did, amen? So that's a great example for us to say in our moments of conflict, nevertheless, Lord, not my will but yours be done. What, Jesus, what do you want? When those storms of, of life and the storms of marriage roll in, are we more committed to obeying Jesus or do we just want to get our own way? Do his words and our feelings consistently win it? Which one? Is it his words or is it our feelings? Which wins? His words or our feelings? Which one wins the day? Are we ready to take the hard and costly steps he calls us to take to keep his, his solid foundation in our lives again and then again and then again and then again? Is your house built on the rock of Jesus or is it built on sinking sand? Is your life built on the rock of Jesus or on sinking sand. Know this. The spirit of Antichrist would try and deceive us away from the solid rock. Don't let him do it. Take care to build your home on the solid rock. Here's the second thing. Take care to guard your heart. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Part of the Beatitudes. Which I like this Beatitudes because it's an attitude that we need to be. Be attitude. I want to be this attitude. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this is probably the clearest word for marriage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 says, you have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a tough one. In other words, don't just avoid the forbidden woman's bed. Avoid even imagining yourself in her bed or vice versa. Go to whatever lengths necessary to guard the garden of your purity and your intimacy with your mate. Matthew 5.29 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now that sounds pretty radical. 
But we need to be radical today in our marriages, in the choices that we make. We need that kind of spirit-filled zeal and vigilance to protect our marriages because sexual temptation is very real, very prominent in our world today. The proverbial woman or man at the street corner, the corner office, or the corner store, they're always there, and they're ready to draw you into their web. Proverbs 2, verses 12 through 19 says this, Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men who, whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirit of the dead, none who go to her return or attain the paths of life. The spirit of deception would try to lure us away, church, but the Holy Spirit's discernment will guard our hearts if we allow him to. It's all about what and who we yield to. Pornography and adultery and premarital sex and other sorts of sexual temptations and perversions are so commonplace now that it's become part of our culture. And it's also destroying our marriages and the very fabric of our culture today. And it's just as pervasive inside the church as it is outside of the church. Do you hear me today? We've invited Satan in and he's doing what he does best. He steals, he kills, and he destroys, and he's no respecter of persons. We must fight together for marital purity, especially in those hard times where infidelity rears its ugly head. You know, this faithful pursuit of purity also comes with a commitment to never leave. Not in five years, not in seven years, not in 50 years, ever. Our vows state for better or for worse, and I can't think of anything worse than marital infidelity. To be sure, marriages wrecked by infidelity will require special care and counsel and grace. And there's no greater temptation than to leave a cheating spouse. But God's word remains clear in Matthew 19, 6, that what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He says that precisely because he knows how much easier separation will feel at that moment and at other times. We live in a broken world and marriages are not exempt from that brokenness. Now my heart hurts here today for those of you who are gone, who've gone through or maybe even going through some sort of infidelity or some impact from it. But I also know that there's some people that are here today and you know who I'm talking about that have hung in there through some pretty tough times. And I can say that you're glad that you did choose to stay. You didn't leave when you felt like you wanted to and you had every right to, and I commend you for that. I encourage all of us today, take care to guard the purity of your hearts today. In this sexually perverted generation, we must stay on guard against the deception of Satan who would try to lure us away from our vows and into the mouth of destruction, he will consume us. He will destroy us if we're not careful. Take care to guard the purity of your marriage and of your life, whether you're married or not. Number three, take care to correct each other with humility. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, marriage is sanctifying. Think about it. Sanctification means, by the way, that we're becoming more and more like Jesus every day if we allow it. Marriage is a sanctifying uh, institution. In fact, it's probably the most sanctifying thing that, that we can have in any human relationship. Marriage sanctifies us, and it sanctifies us for two pretty specific reasons. First, a husband and a wife see more of each other's sins and shortcomings than anyone else could. We see the best and the worst in each of us at any given day or moment. Second, the marriage covenant ties us together for a lifetime, sins and all. We see the worst in each, of, in each other, and yet we choose to remain together in spite of those flaws. You know, how Kelly responds to my sins has a disproportionate effect on how I see myself and my sin, and vice versa. Let me put it this way. If I sin against you, I really feel bad, and I really feel sorry. But there's something different with Kelly. If I sin against her, I'm absolutely devastated. How many understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, as spouses, all of us, we sit at this critical and sensitive and really sometimes painful window into each other's souls. And the question is how we will handle that burden and handle that privilege. And Jesus tells us how. How do we handle it? Here's how. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when then there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's not just for people outside of our marriage. It starts with people that we're married to, or that we have a relationship with in a close tie. Our children, our grandparents people in our workplace, all those sort of people that are in close relation. But getting back to the marriage, how differently might our marriages be if we simply and consistently implemented this, this instruction that Jesus gave us? We should think about it. The longer we stare at any given speck in someone else's eye, a month, a year, decades, the longer we stare at it, the harder it will become to see the, the logs in our own eyes. So I ask the question, do you do that? Do you focus so much on your spouse's speck that you've completely blinded yourself to your own log? It's so easy to see others' faults and not face your own. And I'm bad about that at times. Boy, don't tell me I'm doing something wrong because I'm going to make sure that I point out some of the things about you. Because we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be diminished. And if I'm the only one that does that, then I guess this sermon's for me. But I just really don't think I'm the only one. What it is, it's a protection mechanism that we establish from the youngest of age to deflect spotlight off of us and to direct the blame on the other. It's easier and a lot more fun to throw stones than to receive stones, isn't it? Instead of anger and blame and casting stones, wouldn't we do better to approach our spouse with kindness and humility when confrontation and correction is needed? The spirit of Antichrist has a goal of division. Don't let him divide. Instead, pursue and guard unity and oneness in your marriage. Attack the issue, not the person. Remembering that we're all broken and we're all flawed. In the vulnerability that is marriage, 
It's important to confront and correct each other with humility, with a patient awareness of our own failures and sins and a resilient hopefulness for change and growth in ourselves individually and together. Let's take care to correct each other in humility. Number four, take care not to murder one another. Matthew chapter five, verse nine. It says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Not peace lovers, peacemakers. That means you gotta work for it. We may assume that sexual immorality has ended more marriages than any other threat. And it surely has crushed and devoured many a marriage. But I wonder, however, if maybe unchecked anger has ended more. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 says, and this is Jesus' words, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And I think we would agree with that. It's a pretty fair sort of teaching. Don't kill one another. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But listen how he connects this murder to this. But if you say... But, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He connected murder and anger together, didn't he? As damaging as sexual immorality is in marriage, unchecked anger is also devastating. Unchecked anger, anger that is allowed to remain and grow and fester and strengthen over the years, is equal to murder as far as Jesus is concerned. You know, you look at everything through the lenses of your anger. Everything your spouse says or does now is filtered through those lenses of anger. You're so mad you can just spit nails, and so you do over and over again at each other. And when that happens, everything they say, everything they do, it frustrates you, it angers you, and it leaves no room for the peace of God to rule in your home. Jesus makes no room for unrighteous anger. He's very clear about it. He elevates it alongside murder. That's pretty serious. And yet how often have we made room for it in our homes? Just anger. How often have we just felt justified in our anger as our hurt feelings burned hot within us? How many times have you just felt like you just, that you just want to just kill that one that you said I do to? And on the flip side... How often has the recipient of that anger responded to unrighteous anger with more unrighteous anger? Tit for tat. They get mad at you, and so you get mad at them, and so let the games begin. Ding. All right, folks, beginning of round one, and out they come flying. Just arms, just going at it. By the end of the fight, both are bloodied and battered, and nobody has won except the spirit of Antichrist, who loves the division that we've allowed him to bring in. We've just said, come on in. By all means, guard your marriage bed from sexual immorality, but also guard it from your own anger. Guard against anger, and when a fire of anger breaks out, don't leave it unaddressed. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're coming to worship the Lord, if you're serving Jesus, if you're professing that that, that walk with Christ, and he, there you remember that your brother or your spouse has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go to that person. First, be reconciled to your brother, your spouse, that whosoever, and then come and offer your gift. Pretty simple, hard to do, but un easy to understand. 
Different marriages will have different rhythms for reconciliation, but reconciliation must be part of a marriage. It's important to have that rhythm, that place of reconciliation, to make a place for offenses to consistently get addressed in your relationship. And let's go back to that other point. Let's do it in humility, right? Not in anger, but lovingly correct each other. Be quick to admit when you're wrong or to confess when you failed. And by all means, take care that you don't murder each other. I don't want anybody to end up on dateline. Five, take care to forgive each other. This is hard. This is hard stuff here. Matthew chapter five, verse seven said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. How many likes to receive mercy? Sure you do. How many likes to give out mercy? Yeah. Because every marriage is a union between sinners, forgiveness will be our constant guest, or should be at least. Children may come and go, jobs may come and go, houses may come and go. But the need for forgiveness will remain. Forgiveness needs to be a welcome and celebrated guest in our home not an unwelcome and resented one. Satan, Satan does not want you to forgive. The spirit of Antichrist works hard to keep people at odds with each other and to not forgive. Whether it's in a marriage or you name it, unforgiveness is very prominent in our culture. He loves division, but church, don't let him win. Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. I can't think of any relationship that's more tests our willingness to forgive and to persevere in forgiveness than in a marriage. Jesus says an unwillingness to forgive is spiritually lethal. He says if you don't forgive, I won't forgive. It's a choice you make, and so that it's a choice that he makes because of the choice you make. That's pretty clear. Mercy and forgiveness, on the other hand, produces security and joy and forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful again. Remember, for they shall receive mercy. Give mercy, get mercy. Forgive, be forgiven. Again, that's pretty clear. We can't say, I want to be forgiven, but I still want to hold on forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Forgiveness, think about this. Forgiveness is like this outstretched hand away. It's there, but it's just beyond our reach because we're holding on to unforgiveness. So I'm stretching, I'm stretching, and I can't quite get there. I know what I need to do. I need to let go of unforgiveness, and then I got it. I got forgiveness. But that forgiveness for you will always be out of reach if you're holding on to unforgiveness here. Always. You've got to let go. And you've got to forgive so that you can be forgiven. Forgiveness is costly. And in some ways, all the more so in marriage. You see, marriage reveals more of us than we want to show. And it opens up us to more pain than most relationships than we would have in some ways. And we inevitably must forgive the same sins again and again and again and again. 70 times 7, I think Jesus said every day, it kind of sounds about right. 
It's good to remember that this sort of love, the love that forgives as much as anything on earth is meant to look like the cross. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 says it this way. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was there in pain and completely rejected, and he said these amazing words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't see how he could do that. I don't think I could do that. But that's what he's calling us to do, to take up our cross. Forgiveness is so much like taking up our cross. You know, your, your spouse, your significant other, they're broken. They're flawed. They're imperfect. I got news for you. So are you. Forgiving, forgi for, forgiving is dying to yourself. Forgiving is letting go of the hurts. Forgiving is showing mercy when they don't deserve it. It's losing your life for the sake of Christ. And actually, that's a good thing. The world would say it's not, but God's word says that it is. We shouldn't be surprised that forgiveness sometimes feels like a cross. In fact, that feeling may be proof that we're doing something right. It's the last thing Satan, who's behind the spirit of Antichrist, wants you to do, by the way. But it's the most Christ-like you'll ever be when you forgive. So let's take care to forgive one another. Six, let's take care to cover your marriage with prayer. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is words of Jesus again. And we take this a lot of times as, man, Lord, I just want this thing. I want, the, I want, I want you to bless me. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. How about applying it to your marriage? Prayer is as powerful and important outside of marriage as it is in marriage, but if we're married, nothing will shape our marriages more than praying for your spouse. I believe many marriages suffer unnecessarily because they refuse to take advantage of the all-powerful ear of heaven. Is our marriage really too hard for God? The answer is no, it's not. Satan will keep you from praying. He'll tell you it's too late. He'll tell you prayer doesn't work. He'll tell you that you're wasting your time. He'll tell you that God isn't listening. He'll tell you that God doesn't understand. And I'm here to tell you today that those are all lies. God wants to guide you. God wants to help you. God wants to minister to you. He wants to show you his glory, his power, his wisdom. If you'll pray, trust in him, seek him, call on him. In fact, Jeremiah 33.3 says, call to me and I might answer you. Call to me and there's a few times that I'll answer you. When I feel like that, I'll answer you. No, call on me and I will answer you. That's an emphatic. There's no wiggle room there. He's going to answer you when you call on him. And what's he going to answer you with? Here's how he's going to do it. He's going to tell you great things. He's going to tell you unsearchable things that you don't know. Do you know everything? Absolutely not. But God does. And as you call on him, he'll answer you. And he'll tell you unsearchable things that you don't know. You see the order here? First, you've got to call on him. And then he answers you. And then he shows you these things that you wouldn't know otherwise. You know, the world is full of selfish and carnal and 
fleshly advice. But God's counsel is health and strength and guidance and wisdom in the face of difficult things, in the face of impossible things. So we pray. So we seek fervently. We rely on God wholeheartedly and he will answer us. Matthew 7, 8, Jesus says, everyone who asks receives and then the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Try applying that to your marriage. If your marriage has begun to feel unsustainable, if your marriage feels like that it's veering off and spinning out of out of control, if you've lost hope that things will ever get better, begin to pray. Don't stop praying if, you've praying. if you're praying. Keep praying. Pray. Pray. Seek. Knock. Ask. Trust God with your marriage, with your children, with your friends that you're struggling with. Pray. 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 If you quietly stop praying for your husband or your wife, then begin again. Take Jesus at his word. He's not a liar. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. You know, I love this part that Jesus says, you know, your father's not going to give you a stone if you ask. He's not going to give you a scorpion if you ask for a fish. He's going to give you some good things because we serve a good God. He's going, to, he's going to show you some unsearchable things. He's going, to, he's going to show you things that otherwise you wouldn't know unless you pray, unless you ask and seek and knock. Matthew seven eleven says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Isn't that good to know? So let's take care to cover our marriage in prayer, huh? If you stopped, Resume. If you're praying now, keep praying. Don't stop. Pray, pray. Seven, take care to seek God first before you seek each other. Put God first in your marriage, in other words. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, I, I don't know if this something you can relate to, but a lot of spouses who leave marriages wouldn't have trouble leaving, rather wouldn't have trouble staying for another day or two. They, they can't imagine necessarily staying for another year or two years or 10 years or 30 or 40 years. That seems unsustainable, but if I were to ask you, can you stay for another day or two, then yeah, I think I might be able to tie another knot on the end of the rope on that one. And really, that's the exact kind of thinking that Jesus confronts in his teachings when he teaches about anxiety. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 32, and then on verse 34, it says, Jesus says this, don't be anxious, saying, what shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? Or I might add, how shall I stay married? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, fix your eyes on God today and leave the next five, the next 10, the next 50 years to him. <laughs> I don't know if I can live with him another year. Then how about just another day or two? And let the Lord give you the strength that you need every day. 
If you feel like you've exhausted everything you could possibly give, everything you could possibly sacrifice, everything you could possibly endure in marriage, and being married tomorrow feels impossible, then don't worry about tomorrow. Fix your eyes on God today. Fix your eyes on His righteousness. Fix your eyes on His kingdom, His hope, His promises, His resources, His strength, His joy. All that you need is found in him. And he'll give you the strength that you need for today. And let tomorrow and the next day and all the rest of the tomorrows leave it to him. This doesn't mean that good marriages ignore the future. You need to pay attention to that. Too many of us have a mindset to live in the moment and not think about the ramifications of our immediate actions. Charge something today on your credit card on a whim and pay it off for the next 10 years with interest. It's a good example. Have an affair today and regret it for the rest of your life. It's another good example. But the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. And the problems go with you because you go with you. And as we've said, no one is perfect. And the choice to leave your marriage isn't made in a vacuum, by the way. It not only impacts you, but it impacts your children. It impacts your extended families. It impacts your church family. It impacts your friends. It impacts your witness. It impacts your reputation. It impacts everything. It impacts everything. And on and on it goes. No. Wisdom looks ahead. That's partly of what we were talking about with godly prudence last week. Godly prudence sees future outcomes in today's decisions that we make. Satan doesn't want you to see all that stuff that's going to happen out there as you make that choice to do that thing, whether it's leave your marriage or whatever the case may be. We must look ahead and anticipate dangers, needs, opportunities. Good marriages require regular forethought and planning. Faithful marriages don't ignore the future, but they're also not anxious about the future. There's a balance. They know they don't need a lifetime of marital strength and love today. They just need enough for another Sunday and then another Monday and then another Tuesday and then another Wednesday and every day God will help us. God doesn't call on us to predict or even bear our future troubles. Satan wants to burden you down with that. But he does call us to bear today's troubles in his grace and in his strength that he provides for us today as he is our burden bearer. Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 26 says, don't worry about your life what you're going to eat, about your body, what you're going to wear. For life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable than you are than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your day and to your life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, then why do you worry about the rest? <laughs> worry. Anxiety. Fear, all those things the enemy tries to put on us. But let's cast those things aside. 
and know this, that Jesus is going to keep your marriage. He's going to strengthen your marriage. He's even going to beautify your marriage. As you each focus most on seeking him and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Again, the words of Jesus and all these things will be added to you. What does that mean? Well, that means this. It means that your true satisfaction comes with an abiding relationship with Jesus. It kind of feels like we're coming back full circle to a foundational thing of building our house upon the rock, huh? As you place him first in every area of your life, you will have more satisfying and a more fulfilling marriage. Not perfect, but it'll help greatly. In other words, our vertical focus will impact our horizontal focus and energies. The vertical priority, I'm, this is first, and then all these other things will be added unto me. You see how that works? Man, we flip that around so often. I'm trying to find happiness in things and relationships and whatever. No. Lord, help me to seek first you and your righteousness so that all these other things will be added unto me. And as you do, he'll satisfy you. As you do, he'll fill you. Then out of that fullness, you can pour out to your spouse, to your children, to those around you. So take care to seek God first and foremost above all else. It'll make the relationship that you have around you, starting with your spouse, a whole lot sweeter, I promise. So, as we conclude here today, no marriage is perfect. True. You agree? No marriage is perfect. But as we take care to build it upon the solid rock of Jesus, his, his being the foundation that we build our lives, and not just our marriages, but our lives. For those of you who are not married, this is some really good head start advice. Build your relationship on Jesus Christ. Seek him first. Don't seek a spouse first. Don't get desperate. Don't settle. Trust God. He's got a mate for you. In his good time, he has the right person for you. I'm glad that I waited. Kelly and I waited. I was 26 when I got married. She was 24. We waited. But boy, I know she's the right. We know we're the right ones for each other. We complement each other perfectly. Some of us, I think, we just get so anxious and we settle. Don't do that. Seek him first. No matter how long it takes, trust him, and then he'll bring these other things to you, including a beautiful wife or a beautiful, a handsome husband, right? A wonderful mate for you, a perfect mate, a complimentary mate. I've got a lot of wives here today that are giggling that because they say, well, my husband is not beautiful. Maybe 30 years ago, but not today, right? Ah. <laughs> uh. Church, let's take care to guard the purity of our hearts. Amen? As we pursue purity and we guard it, that'll help to build a better marriage. Take care to walk in humility with each other. Correct each other, yeah. Speak into each other's lives. 
The Bible says to speak the truth in love. Do it in humility. Realizing that I'm pointing a finger to you, but three are pointing back to me, right? Take care to let go of the anger that's there. If you've got some unsettled and undealt with anger that's built up over the years, let it go. It's akin to murder. Be careful. Take care to forgive. If you want to be forgiven, walk in forgiveness. Not just with those here, but most importantly, starting with God. I know that I don't want to walk around in my life holding unforgiveness, knowing that God has made the choice to say, I, I, I can't and I won't forgive you because you're being God to someone else and not forgiving them. That's so wrong in so many different levels. Forgive. Cover your marriage in prayer. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your children. Pray for your significant others if you're dating someone. Pray for them. Pray together. Pray for them. And then pursue God first. Let Him be the primary focus. And then all these other things will be added unto you. Amen? That's, that's, that's what godly marriage is. That's what biblical marriage is. It sounds so practical. It feels so, yeah, okay. But see, the world would say just the opposite of this. So I'm trying to get us back to what God's Word says, okay? Be aware. Be aware. of The Spirit of Antichrist that would have you do the opposite he wants to deceive you. He wants to confuse you. He wants to divide you. So I would say, church, call him out on his conniving ways. Cast him aside. Take authority over him. Put him under your feet. Call on the Holy Spirit's discernment to expose his subtle ways of destruction and declare that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord. He's the master of your household. He's the master of your domain. He's the foundation of your marriage. He's the foundation of your family. He's the master and king of all that represents you today. Amen? Family matters, and a strong marriage, your strong marriage in Christ, can make a difference to those around you, and to your children, and to your grandchildren, and for all generations to come until Jesus returns. And that's what we actually are going to look at next Sunday. As we speak to our children, as we speak to our teens, this current generation is facing an onslaught of deception like no other generation, I believe, ever before. How can we be on guard? How can we identify the deception being crafted by Satan that is targeting even the youngest of children in our, in our society? How can we not only protect against them, but be more than overcomers in the enemy's plan for our children? You know, I don't want to just cower down and say, oh Lord, just protect. No, I'm going on the offensive. The Bible says we are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers through Jesus Christ. We have the authority and it's time to go on the offensive and to stop cowering down to the pressures and to the voices of the spirit of Antichrist that says one thing. God's word is final. It's more powerful. It's eternal. And God's word will stand when it's all said and done and the dust settles. God's word will remain, church. And so I say, choose the winning side. Stand on the winning side today. In the onslaught and the push against our families, it's time to stand up and be the men and God that he's called us to be for our children. And we're going to look at that next week and see how God's plans can succeed in our life. Amen? You will not want to miss next Sunday. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father God, we thank you today. 
that your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It's an instruction manual for our life. It's a help to us when we're hearing voices from all sorts of different directions. And yet your one voice, your still small voice, your solid voice, the unchanging voice, the true north voice of God points us in the direction of help and health and righteousness and peace and holiness and godliness. And we will build our lives upon you today. Lord, you are the solid rock, the solid foundation. Help us, Father God, if we've chosen the things of this world and built it upon sand, we make a choice today. In fact, would you do that right now as I'm praying? Say, Jesus, I, I make a choice right now. I'm, I'm, I'm rejecting these things that the world has to say. All this social media stuff, all the woke stuff, all the agenda stuff, all, the woke, all that just lies of the enemy. The perversion where it's being turned upside down. I reject it wholesale. And I choose to get back to the true north of what your word says. I will build the foundation of my life upon you, Jesus Christ. Pray that prayer in your heart right now. Say, Jesus, I come back to you. I build the foundation on you again. You're my solid rock. When all around me is sinking sand on Christ, the solid rock, I choose to stand. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to guard the purity of our hearts, that we would stop making choices to have the wandering eye and the wandering heart and the wandering thoughts and the wandering emotions and our feet that stray into these webs, these traps. Keep our heart pure before you, Lord Jesus. Forgive us today of the choices that we've made that are sexually perverse and against what your word says. We choose, Lord God, to walk in purity, purify our hearts. Your word says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's David, King David's cry. That's our cry today. Create in us a clean heart, O God, a pure heart today. And help us, Father God, to run and flee temptation and run to you, Lord God. Lord, help us to walk in humility with each other. Oh, God, help us to be humble and not prideful, not to be arrogant, but humble. Speak the truth in love, to correct in humility, realizing that we're just as bad in so many other ways. But together, oh, iron sharpens iron. And we will love one another and point one another to the cross where we can make our petitions known and we can cast our cares to you. Help us, Father God, to walk in humility, to take to take that anger, Lord God, at the same time and place it at your feet. We would stop being angry and walking in anger and seeing things through angry eyes and hurt eyes. Instead, that we would walk in love and forgiveness. Help us, Father God, to walk in love and forgiveness towards everybody, our, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, our co-workers, our relatives, everybody. Help us to walk in love and forgiveness, Lord God. Help us to pray for our spouses. Yes, for our children, for our parents, for our loved ones. Help us to pray, Lord God, for those that we love so much. The effectual fervent prayers of a righteous person availeth much. Help us to pray to not give up. Help us, Father God, to take care that we would pursue you first and foremost. You would be the primary pursuit of our lives and then all these things are going to be added unto us. Thank you, Jesus. We give these things to you. This is hard for us. 
and we can't do this in our own strength. We will fail miserably if we try to will ourselves and determine to do this in our own strength. But Holy Spirit, you're here to help us. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, into these areas where we struggle, whether it's impurity or anger or unforgiveness, whatever. We give these things to you, Lord God. Help us, Jesus, to be like you. Let the fruit of the Holy Spirit of Christ rise up in us and let those good things of you flow out from us. The words, the actions, the thoughts, all those things. And Father, as you sanctify us, it means that we're going to make some mistakes, but we're going to move forward. We're going to take two steps forward and one step back. We're going to make some mistakes as we go, but we're going to lean into you. Sanctify us in our marriages and help us, Lord God, to be more like you in everything that we say and do and think with our spouses, our children, our parents, and everybody that we know. We can't do this without you, Holy Spirit, so go with us from this place and help us. And let the first words that come out of our mouths as we say amen here, and then the second words and the third words, and as we get in our cars and as we're at home today and later on this week, let our words, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight as you lead us, Holy Spirit, to be more Christ-like in our marriages. Thank you, Lord. Family does matter. Our family matters. Our spouses matter. Our children matter. This family, this body of Christ, the family of God matters. Help us, Father God. Walk us, walk with us here. And thank you for uh, just helping us today to give us some tools to walk, to really to, 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 uh, to apply to our marriages. Lord, we're going to make mistakes, but don't let the enemy tell us that it's not worth trying. Don't let the spirit of Antichrist win anymore. But let the spirit of discernment, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of peace, the spirit of joy, the spirit of forgiveness, the spirit of Christ reign in our hearts and then act out from us from there. We love you, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.